0: Fika with Annika. So, hey alla mina radiovänner, welcome to Fika with Annika. So, welcome to uh, Fika with Annika, another episode here with Tim Lordson, uh, naturalist, tree man. Um, all, all around a botanist and ansa historian. Lincoln Hamilton
1: was my godfather. His wife Louise was at Occidental College as a music professor which my mother filled after Louise married Link Hamilton. When I arrived, Link hired me. He had 260 head of cattle and six giant bowls and three windmills on a leased piece of land on two sections that was designated to skip Costa which is the eastern upper plains of the Cahuilla land and I was to put out 14 bales of hay every two three days and check on the windmill and empty out some bags, of cottonseed meal, and put out another block of salt. Be sure that the pond was filled with water. I had just moved here as a Greenhorn from 20 years in Los Angeles, so it was remarkable to me that I could see on a regular basis driving out to this ranch from Lynx, the golden eagle that had built a nest on the rock and you'd get eye-to-eye contact just a short distance away it was so wild back then he and his brother had the entire region to themselves as cattlemen but back at the ranch which was basically the south part of town he had a barn where there was quite a lot of dancing and socializing. He was always promoting that. And the community hall was built in 1949. My dad helped bring up the Occidental College Glee Club to sing to the locals then, all 62 people, and raise enough money to finish the roof because Louise taught at Occidental College. But during the first five years I lived here, I experienced, until his death in the mid-70s, the cattle industry, the branding, and the sorting. I drove his truck. He was in his 70s, so he had a Power Wagon International that if you pulled the choke, it was connected to the horn. So, if you pulled out of the dashboard this choke, you'd hear this oh! If you pulled it faster, you'd hear this oh!
0: oh! And all the
1: cows would come running down a mile up in the hillside because they knew it was hay feeding time.
0: Oh, what a wonderful sound to hear that in the valley. It, yes. Honka honka.
1: Yes. He, he shared a dream with me uh, where um, he was more of a cattleman. He didn't want to spend his entire life out on the farm, although he worked uh, quite a 70 years or so there and made a good life. Uh, grains, he even grew gladiolas one year. I remember we set up the, the potato combining to uh, adjust to dig up the gladiola bulbs. And we got about 50 feet down on the first pass and looked back and every bulb had been chopped in half. So we had to readjust the depth on that. And another time we were seating his uh, West 40 um, and a good friend of his came down from Nevada to Run over to the Chaparral restaurant for lunch, and and I was left to slip into the driver's seat of his giant tractor, and I got a chance to finish. In my late teens, to run this monstrous tractor, putting seed out on the field, I was so invigorated by the power of this machine. But there were times when it was difficult to get in and out of the ranch. Uh, the mud drained off his front 40, or his north 40. and uh, I used to play, before the main house was built in the 60s, he, he, uh, he bought the Contreras' house there on the ranch. Um, Clarence Contreras, who I knew was also a cattleman, uh, so I got to experience from 1972 to about 75, 76, the last five years of the cattle industry with Charles Johnson next door at Lincoln Hamilton and Clarence Contreras and Virgil Prater and Skip Costo and on and on uh, was the end of that era and the real history of Anza. Uh, So Margaret Jenke has saved that story in great detail at the original ranch which um, is so full of history that it's amazing how little a town we have but yet how much history we have as well. The whole homesteading ethics was to work a year and prove up on your land that you could produce enough food, feed, and fuel, and have a roof over your house, so many square feet. That proved to you and to the government the land was yours, which then entitled you to start paying property tax. So the rest is history. The homesteading ethics was all uh, about stimulating business. I think it morphed into the Chamber of Commerce I also worked at the ranch for Louise, which was basically 20 acres and outbuildings, a lot of foxtail weeds by hoeing. Later, Years later, after Link had passed, she did not um, allow a string trimmer. She was an Armenian from uh, Eastern European culture that was very difficult. But yet, she worked and lived there probably 70-plus years, well into her 90s, like many of the ranchers up here. My stepmother, Emily Carey, was also one that did the same thing. They started the Thimble Club. So um, there were quite a number of fruit trees, an orchard, and the big new house had been built. So it required uh, maintenance and so on. And I stayed on as her handyman and ranch hand until early 2000s. And she married Lincoln in 1937. So 63 years in the house or more. And then she came back and lived another year or two after Saying a restroom wasn't her style.
0: <laughs> so, uh, just out of curiosity, how many children did uh, Lincoln Hamilton
1: have? Uh, Louise did not have children with Link. Uh, Louise had a sister, Pauline, who married my stepmother Emily's son, Harry Dalby. So, I was related to the Hamiltons. Who are also related through Link's brother to the Wellmans. We're talking the teen years and so out of a dozen ranchers everybody knew everybody they met at the Hall um, for a monthly dance and pit barbecue and back to work you went. Uh, Life was up at crack of dawn and you worked till dark. Hopefully your outhouse was facing east so it would catch the first sun. And everybody had a garden. Louise had a huge garden. I was her gardener. But from that, we transplanted to each other's garden, lilacs and locust trees and, and so on. And Louise was more into flowers. She even had poppies, Asian and Oriental poppies, growing there in her garden. So um, it was a lot of work. You just did what you did all day, and at the end of the day, you were glad to take home a bag of food or fruit off the trees.
0: I see. So uh, you mentioned earlier uh, gladiolas. And was that that a viable crop or they tried it just for a year or two and it just went nowhere?
1: No, actually Link uh, was recognized, um, I think at least county if not statewide, for his ingenuity with accommodating the harvest combine um, for potatoes uh, to do the same with gladiolas because the industry was not necessarily the same in the way the equipment was used. And Link was a, was a man who was always seeing where the future could go. He, he knew that uh, you could generate quite a lot of electricity on a dock that raised and lowered with the tides, adjusted to gears. He was constantly sharing these ideas. Um, he'd even sh- after the, over the years, he even got to sharing a dream that he was out on the cattle ranch or out on the range where the cattle were and he had gotten out and walked up this canyon to check on things and a coyote had a rifle started shooting at him and he had to take refuge behind a rock where he could see his wife down at the truck and he yelled at his wife to shoot the coyote who had the gun shooting at him. (laughs) And I don't believe that Louise shot the coyote. I think the dream ended some other way, but nonetheless it indicated that Link's higher self was a real true cattleman and to experience the wildlife at the time. Certainly we would find calves uh, killed by coyotes. Um, so, uh, but it was wild out on the open range. I met Charlie Johnson one morning because we had to pass through a corridor of Sylvester Sylvester's and Charlie Johnson's to get over to Skip Costa's from Links Ranch, which was just a short jump, but it required a couple of three gap gates and. I went out there one day, this was after Link was gone, had the hay on the back, and here was this old guy using his pick- pickup truck on my side of the fence, walking five cows down the road, down the fence line, and Phyllis Johnson, this was Charlie Johnson's wife, was standing with the gate open, and here was Charlie trying to take these five cows over to his side. Wait,
0: these were not his cows?
1: Well, Was I'm, he cattle rustling? I don't believe he was cattle rustling, but okay. that's sure how it appeared to me as a greenhorn. All right. So what I did was I just got out and pulled some hay off the back of the truck. And of course those cows turned and they all came walking over seeing it was feeding time, you know. Well, I don't think Charlie appreciated that much because he came over, his cantankerous old redneck, and uh, you know what the are you doing you know and I'm going what are you doing you know I and so we never really met it off from that point he he pretty well wrote me off as some long haired something or other I don't know but we're talking uh, 1978 He he quit smoking cigarettes but it killed him in two weeks his heart gave out So, by 1977, 78, the valley floor of Anza had been diminished to just horses over on the Kellogg Ranch on the west side of the valley floor. So, my homestead looked right over all three ranches. And I go back and remember when, um, on a moonless night, and we still had no power that you could see your star shadow. When electricity came, it changed things. There were more fence lines and when asphalt came, there were more cars and more headlights and more noise at night and so on. So um, here we are, I can't believe it. In my own lifetime, 61, 62 years now later, But we've still got a nice little country town that needs a few more trees. But I have to say, when I heard Link Hamilton tell me in 1977, there's too many people up here, I'll have to agree with him. Especially when we remember just a week or two ago, or last month, we're talking 2019, February 14th, we had nine inches of rain in 20 hours, and we all got to learn our neighbors and who had the tractor, so that we could get out (laughs) through the sea of mud. And this only happens every so many years. Link used to say every four, no, every five years you break even on dry farming. But he had the first deep well and windmill which was hundred and twenty feet I believe he sold it to my dad and we do have a windmill on my property that is working today an air motor I'm not sure if it's the same one but it all went to electricity to lift the water rather than wait for the wind to do it in holding tank and gravity feed from there that's how it was done so, well,
0: certainly economical.
1: Uh, yes, we didn't have electricity,
0: and just use the water when you need it.
1: Yeah, I used to sneak in the hot springs at night to get a nice warm bath over, um, you know, where the casino is today.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, now it's all fenced in and, yes. and no access. But uh, I'll find that
1: old slide and share that image. It always brings a <laughs> smile. We would wait, my dad would sneak us in there, me and my sister, and we would wait for Sputnik to pass over, which was every 70 minutes after it circled the earth. And uh, then he'd say, it's time to get out. And we would come home and get all dirty playing out. And then so in the 50s on our homestead, those were the days.
2: Attention Mountain Residents. Recognizing community needs in the age of technology, the Anza Electric Cooperative is partnering with the Riverside County Information and Technology Department and Anza Community Broadcasting, KOIT, to distribute refurbished desktop computers for free to income-qualified residents. These desktop computers come loaded with Windows 10 and Home Office. If you're interested in seeing if you or your family member qualifies, the applications are available online at anzaelectric.org, at the Anza Electric Cooperative front office, at Lorraine's Pet Supply, and in the box outside of the KOYT station. Once you have filled out your application, it can be scanned and emailed to fundraising at koyt971.org. It can be mailed P.O. Box 391-229, Anza, California 92539, or handed in at Lorraine's Pet Supply, the co-op office, or in the mail slot at the KOYT station.
0: The Coyote. Listen to it. Welcome back to Fika with Anika. So Tim, this photo that you just passed over to me, this is a photo of Mount Whitney?
1: No, it's a picture of the glacier volcano in the Glacier National Wilderness up in the Cascades, northern, central northern Washington. And um, I met a fellow named Bob Hotel who ran the Pacific Crest Trail after he retired at the age of 53 as a track coach in Hermosa Beach, California, taught at Manhattan, in Manhattan Beach. And the first summer he ran from Mexico to Lassen Peak in Northern California. And on his way north, about the fourth day, he came into Anza and spent his first day layover in Camp Anza campground. And on his day layover, he ran into town to Anza from Terwilliger And in those days, in the mid-'80s, Rudy's Cafe was still operating. And I came in Sunday morning, and here was this fellow sitting there on a fairly cool March morning with shorts and tennis shoes and a tank top, but a fanny pack, not a backpack, or a day pack. And I looked at him a couple times, and I finally asked him. He seemed a little up in his years, and I asked him, I said, are you doing the Pacific Crest Trail? And he lightened right up and started saying yes. Well, it happened at the time that my job for the next few days was a mile from the Pacific Crest Trail. I was working up in Apple Canyon for the um, Los Angeles Zen Center doing work. And when he told me his plan, uh, I was fascinated because I had done quite a lot of hiking. But here was a man... Uh, twenty years older who could do a regular 25 thirty mile a day and so I said well I'll run some water up to the trail for you which sat between Ansel Rock and Apache peak and I left two gallons of water in the shade with a couple of wood sticks as an arrow for uh, pointing at it so he came running by the next couple days and there was his water. He remembered it and put it in his book. I never thought I'd see him again, but because the first summer when it came time to run over the top of San Jacinto mountain, it had been thunder showers and lightning and heavy rain, so he went around the mountain the first summer. But on the second summer, and he went on to last, he had done almost all of California the first summer and before he started from Lassen on north his second year he came and ran over San Jacinto which brought him to Idlewild and to Jan's Red Kettle where I happened to walk in and remembered him so we sat over breakfast the second year and discussed our third year because at this point I had to get involved. And he had this charisma about him that whenever he started talking, it was like you had to get involved. Now, I wasn't a runner, I was a hiker. But my family had property near the trails in Washington at the time. And I said, you know, it wouldn't be difficult for me to organize this. Um, And it takes a lot more organizing in the Cascades because the mountain range is 100 miles wide, whereas in the Sierra Nevadas it's less than that, much less, so the trailheads aren't that far to connect onto the main trail. So we met just north of Stevens Pass in Washington, about central, and it was six more days to Canada hundreds of miles and I hiked up an obscure side trail and then came to the Pacific Crest Trail probably about 35 minutes before he arrived running north on the main trail and then I played leapfrog with him the remainder of the trip he would run two, three days, and then take a day or two off to rest. I, on the other hand, had to hike every day, 25, 35 miles every day, to stay ahead so that when he caught up with me, I could carry his gear on ahead. And it became a challenge, because in the Cascades, the mountains are volcanoes and in the mid 80s there were glaciers melting huge volumes of water and that you absolutely had to use a bridge to get on your way if a bridge was washed out it could add another 30-40 minutes on your route to get out the rope and he was not carrying a lot of equipment I was carrying his tarp an extra pair of shoes and some other items for him On one day he laid over at Kennedy Meadows. It rained that night and I had taken his tarp with me on the head, but it worked out. He caught up and um, it was um, a real adventure where you would see bear and moose And uh, there were times when I would come walking into camp in the dark with a flashlight and have to get up and be gone by the crack of dawn. You want to play it back a second, I could. You see, Bob Hotel was very determined and he went on ahead and wrote his book, Soul, Sweat and Survival of the Pacific Crest Trail which in itself is a feat, but basically what Bob did was he ran 2,200 miles in three summers, averaging 25 miles a day. Not every day, day in and day out, but it was something that I don't think anybody has done since then, and this is the year 2019, and this was in 19, the three summers of 19, 83, 4, and 5. So I was very um, pleased to experience the Cascades, rivers of water, glaciers, um, moss hanging from the trees. I did it in the summer when the foliage was dense and the wildflowers were intense and water everywhere. And without proper equipment, um, one could uh, get into trouble very easily. Uh, There were a couple of places where the bridges were washed out and we had to improvise. And when I say we, since most of the time I was hiking by myself, being that we're leapfrogging, and I say I would go on ahead 12, 15 miles on the trail, and then he would run the next day 25 miles and often if we left, if I left camp early in the morning and he chose to run that day, he would pass me about 10 in the morning. I'd hike all morning and then he'd come running by and say, see you tonight. (laughs) Goodness. (laughs) And so, um, it's it's important to stay on schedule. Uh, Bob had did, a great deal of research with running clubs throughout the state of Oregon and Washington to have runners and pacers come in with a new pair of shoes every four or five days or um, high energy gorp and granolas for his day pack. He had a trash bag for a rain jacket. He had a fanny pack not a day pack or a a main pack. He wore tennis shoes and shorts, and that was it. So he survived to write a book about it, and it's been an inspiration for me ever since. I I still believe that he's probably in his 90s and uh, doing quite well. For his accomplishments but he got quite a number of others including myself to at least take a walk Um, I'm not sure that I would go into the wilderness alone as skimpily clad as he was and feel comfortable about it but he did and really how you feel feeds your willpower how you think creates your aura of security many people who go into the wilderness think well how do you protect yourself from the lions and tigers and bears kind of thing and that is done through a vibration Uh, much as you're driving your car you have a certain destination that you've set your willpower to And as long as you're in concentration of that, we end up creating a shield around us, a a vibration. And so there is no such thing as a threat if you're in total awe and in love with your environment, which is pure. And the animals know no threat. They're more curious of you than anything so we might relate in fear to a close sighting of a mountain lion or bear and that then starts a stench an auric stench in the mind and the nose and the ability of the animals whose sense of smell is bigger than their head or brain you know, like like you know like a dog can smell or a horse can smell for miles away And so this wildlife knows and smells how we think almost, if you could put it in those terms. Uh, So that's part of the answer I give for those who ask, how do you protect yourself? In the wilderness, you're not allowed to use a gun. You're the visitor. Um, Certainly you can protect yourself by other means through noise through motion through a branch from a tree or whatever the predicament uh, entails but in the thousands of miles and hundreds of hours and many months of life that I've been in the wilderness have I ever once been threatened by a wild critter maybe the rattlesnakes have warned me <laughs> but they're warning us so that they don't have to attack. Um, You know, don't tread on me is really what the rattle is all about, which is more of an issue in the south here on the Pacific Crest Trail and dehydration than in the north where um, you can slip and sprain an ankle or a bridge can be washed out and you might drown trying to cross with a rope. Uh, but that's what the adventure of doing the Pacific Crest Trail is about and it is truly a soul-searching sweat and survival of an attempt to do 20 2100 miles is no easy task. Now when I did the last 6 days Uh, from central Washington into the Canadian border with Bob Hotel we were averaging 25 to 30 miles a day most hikers do 10 miles once you get into a routine day in and day out and your boots hold up because that's the one item in your equipment that takes the most wear and tear and I've seen boots being Thrashed just in the six days or ten or twelve days that some people take to get to Anza, ninety miles north from the border. Uh, and so, new shoes and new socks uh, are required to continue. Or, or if a backpack breaks, uh, then you're off a side trail to to civilization, you know, to pick up something to replace that. Uh, I've seen some kids, most are in their 20s, there are people from all over the world coming here now in March and April to start the Pacific Crest Trail. It's timed much like the butterflies uh, this year that you follow the flowers. You can't exactly do that by foot like a butterfly can, but but nevertheless, it's, it's an amazing uh, feat and an event of elevation and everything from sub subhara on up to tundra um, the trail passes in and every condition in between that you can imagine. Obviously, the, the people who are on this trail hiking through are the ones who understand the importance of sharing camping equipment, camping information, and about your equipment with those that you pass going the other direction. Um, And everyone, no matter what the effort it takes to get to a mountain peak, and that's what the Pacific Crest Trail is about, is to see the views from all the mountain peaks. More so down here where they're 14,000 foot peaks, sometimes two or three a day. Uh, Whereas up in the Cascades, the trails stay down at 4,000 foot where the snow line is, uh, so that in the spring or in the fall, if you're hiking, the trails aren't buried in the winter months. Uh, I mean, that you can hike through. Uh, even in the winter months if should you go with snow equipment in the Cascades. Uh, So a variety of equipment especially footwear is needed depending on which sections of the trail are done. So the logistics of a series of day hikes from trailheads along the way where you can be dropped off In the morning at crack of dawn and then picked back up at the next trail head north would be an ideal situation but requires a lot of logistics which is what Bob Hotel was able to do in in the north in the northern states Oregon is pretty mountainous and pretty same forests Uh, you know um, it, it has its volcanoes and it has its points but in terms of real varieties and excitements and roaring rivers and incredible vistas and views Washington and the John Muir section of the California section is is by far the most rewarding um, Backpacks, I used a Kelty pack. I still use it today from 50 years ago in my Boy Scout days, and it's held up very well.
0: The same backpack? The
1: same backpack. Although, in my early years of Boy Scouts, I built my own pack out of dowel and rope as a kit uh, for another badge, um, which, and I still have it. It's, 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 it's pretty simple, and it yes. worked for the 50 miles. I used it uh, from Kearsarge Pass to Cedar Springs in the uh, Sierra Nevadas. Um, but I left it hanging out on a tree because I've upgraded. <laughs> um, certainly having uh, clothing uh, is important if you're hiking through and spending nights because often up at 12,000 feet the temperatures can get below freezing even in the summertime but we've come up with quite a variety of synthetics and lightweight clothing that works ideally for camping equipment where it's waterproof so in the north um, cotton and wool is not practical. Um, Synthetics are I woke up once, and it rained during the night. I had no tent, but I had put my backpack, I'd stuffed everything I could except my bag and me um, in my backpack and laid it over my boots, and um, climbed into my bag up against a big flat rock and managed to stay fairly dry through the night of rain. But when I woke up in the morning, I had 10 extra pounds of moisture in all of my equipment. And my boots were the only thing that stayed dry, which was really all I needed. Because if you can get, if you get wet in, in leather hiking boots, which is what I used for the Cascades, um, a blister can form very quickly. Mm-hmm. So um, there are certain items that you add to your first aid kit which can be fairly simple uh, on adventure hikes but but designed and organized uh, for the particulars if you do your homework for that section um, then you'll know uh, what you'll need and and that'll make the adventure enjoyable (laughs) You, you put yourself 100 miles and, and, and you don't and you re- realize you've forgotten something very very needing then you have to improvise with what you got uh, so um, or you have to hike back <laughs> so I um, find that um, the views are always worth the effort I don't necessarily spend a lot of time on the mountain tops First off, because there's usually someone there, and second, you're not spending the night there. You gotta get back off the mountain. And getting down off mountains is actually more difficult than climbing a mountain, because when you're going up, you can see where to put your feet, and you're offsetting gravity. On your way down, you can't see. As well, where to put your feet and the weight of your body is added by gravity so you're pounding your weight onto your ankles and feet on your way down and if you're working in snow and ice that's where you can get into trouble anybody can get to the top of a mountain but getting back down so I don't spend a lot of time if it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon you better head out If it's taken three, four hours to get there, you don't want to find yourself in the dark, on a trail, improvising, not knowing the surrounding areas. Um, Recently, a discussion I got involved with on the use of drones for police work. I said they're ideal for suburbia and following some one person, but They wouldn't work well in the wilderness for search and rescue. A guide pays close attention to the wildlife, how the birds are flying, how the critters are located, when and where and what time of the day, not just their prints that they've left, but how they behave in their surroundings. If you're familiar with how they behave, but they're not behaving normally because you've got this drone you see it won't work it doesn't work for search and rescue maybe in particular situations
0: that's certainly interesting Um, I would have thought that technology would have beat wilderness tactics oh
1: it will be used but uh, certainly a drone is a lot less obtrusive than a helicopter when it comes to um, search and rescue but then a helicopter might have to lift out a horse I don't know of a drone that can do that. Right.
0: Okay, Tim. Well, so I think that concludes this episode of uh, Fika with Anika. As always, it's a pleasure having you here. If any of our listeners are interested in in, uh, fielding any questions for Tim, Mm -hmm. please send an email to programming at koyt 971org and put a uh, question for Tim in the subject line. And we will get those questions to Tim, and you will hear your answers on the air. Be glad to. Happy trails. Uh, happy trails to you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening in to Fika with Annika. Enjoy your cup of Fika Wednesdays at 3 p.m. and replayed Sundays at 1 p.m.